Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you that you are sovereign, you are in control, you rule the universe, you created the universe. We thank you that your son Jesus is king, he is seated at your right hand, and he has been appointed as head over all things. Thank you that you have placed his enemies under his feet. And we praise you. We thank you that Jesus is the Lord of the church. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is active in speaking to us by your word and making us grow and using us for your glory and equipping us for ministry. God, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to hear your word this evening, that we would be encouraged, that we would be transformed. We know that your word never comes back empty or void. And so we pray that your word would transform our hearts this evening, Lord. I pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are getting to, to the end of the book of Ephesians. In fact, we have uh, two Sundays left, this one and, and next, in the book of Ephesians. And today we're coming to one of the uh, more known passages, not only in Ephesians, but in the, in the whole Bible, which is uh, the armor of God. Right? It's, I think this is a, a, a passage that, you know, just... It's very popular, and, and I mean, with, with good reason, right? It, it, Paul uses some beautiful, you know, poetic imagery to illustrate, you know, the, the armor of God, what God has provided for us as believers. Um, I was listening to a sermon on this passage by Sam Storms, who is a pastor in Oklahoma, and the reason why I was listening to, uh, particularly to Sam Storms is because that I know that he wrote a book on spiritual warfare. And so I thought, okay, well, I wonder what he has to say about uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, which is very much on spiritual warfare, right? It very much talks about uh, how our battle is against, uh, against the devil, right? The devil is the one that is attacking us. And so I wanted to see what he, what he had to say. Um, Bottom line is, I recommend his sermon a lot. So, in fact, that was at the beginning of my preparation. I was almost tempted to say, you know what? I'll I just won't preach this week, and I'll I'll have a we'll play Sam Storm's sermon. Uh, let's do it. <laughs> um, but you know, as I got studying a little bit more of the passage, obviously, I I, it, I started getting a lot more into it, and now I'm I'm excited to preach this passage. Uh, one of the things he says, and I wanted to share with you, he was, uh, he quoted uh, late Justice Antonin Scalia, um, 
basically he was being interviewed by, the, by a reporter from the New York Times. And somehow the conversation got into the topic of the devil. And so this is what the reporter asks him, you know, they're talking about the devil. There's some context to it. But basically the reporter says, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? Kind of like, you know, pretty much saying like, really, do you believe in the devil? And so this is the response that, that Scalia gave. He said, you're looking at me as though I am weird. My God, are you so out of touch with most of America? Most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It is in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you are appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. So, I mean, I, I thought that was a great answer uh, because, you know, if you think about it, a lot of people today do not believe in the devil. Even Christians, right? I know that it's crazy to imagine, but there are lots of Christians out there that don't believe in the devil. When we know that the Bible so clearly speaks about a, a real devil. And so uh, the reason I, I wanted to bring that topic is because the topic is very, the topic of Satan, of the devil, of our enemy is very much uh, alive in this passage. It's, it's a very important part of this passage. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through um, 18. I know that in the bulletin and in the email, it says that we're going to go through verse 20, but we're going to do verses 19 through 24 next Sunday. So this Sunday, uh, we're, we're starting in verse 10. So can I ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word? Finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So before we talk about the armor of God, we're going we're gonna to deal with each one of the, you know, the items in the, in the armor of God, and we're going to talk about what they mean. But before we get into that, I do want to do a little bit of clearing of the desk. I do want to talk about the topic of spiritual warfare. Yeah, the first thing, I, I, the first thing I, I, I think it's important for us to know is that there is a tension 
in this world, right? Because if you, if you, you know, as we have been studying in the book of Ephesians, one of the things that we see very clearly is that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that God has seated Jesus at his right hand. And it says there in chapter one that he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And he has made, well, you know what? I'm just going to read it. It says uh, in, in chapter one, verse 20, he's talking about the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the tension that I'm talking about is, well, if Jesus is already seated at the right hand of God, if all authority has been given to him, if all of his enemies have been put under his feet, why are we still warned against the devil? Right? If we believe that Jesus already gave Satan a fatal blow at the cross, why do we still have to protect ourselves against the attacks of the enemy? Right? So here, this is the, the tension. And so, uh, uh, you know, to, to answer to that, I think uh, John, the Apostle John, has a good answer for this. And that is in 1 John 5, 19, he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So even though Jesus is already Lord, and even though Jesus is already seated at the right hand of the Father, and even though Jesus already has all authority, his kingdom has been inaugurated, but the kingdom of God has not been consummated. Right? We still live in this in-between reality where he started, you know, when, when he came, remember when Jesus was casting out demons and the Pharisees were really upset with him because he was casting demons. And he says something to the effect of, you know, if I cast demons in the name of, or in the power of the spirit, then the kingdom of God is among you. Right? So he's telling them the kingdom of God is right here. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. However, the kingdom of God has not been consummated. It's not complete yet. Right? And so for the time being, from the moment that Jesus came and he, uh, uh, you know, he became flesh, he died on the cross, he ascended, he is seated at the right hand of God until he comes again in the second coming, we are going to be living in this tension where, yes, God is in power, God is in control, and he has all authority, but he is still permitting Satan to have this limited uh, control here in the world. And that's why John can say the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, it is good for us to remember that because we belong to God, those of us who have believed in him, those of us who have trusted him, we are from God, right? That's what, that's what John says. And therefore, uh, we can be confident, we can be assured that there is nothing that Satan, there's nothing that the enemy can do to us that is outside of God's control. Right now, let me be clear. It doesn't mean that Satan will never do anything to us. I mean, take Job, for example. Satan did a lot to him, but all of it was under the authority of God. There is nothing that Satan can do that it, it, out of his own authority. He is always 
uh, uh, under the power and the authority of God. We also remember uh, in the book of Revelation, right? If we were studying the book of Revelation a, a, a few months ago, and one of the things that we learned there is that the martyrs, you know, the, the people that died due to the, you know, the basically the wrath of the enemy, even though they died, even though they physically died, they still triumphed in their death because of the death of Jesus, right? So in other words, it is possible to be spiritually successful while at the same time being physically, uh, quote, defeated. And I think this is important because there are many churches out there. In fact, uh, when I was in college, I visited a church like this where literally, I kid you not, the preacher was saying something to the extent of, since Jesus is already in control, since he already has all the power, if you are sick, it's because of your own sin. I was like, what? And if you are poor, it's because of your own sin. It's because you're letting the devil take power over that because the devil is already defeated. And Jesus, I mean, something to that extent. I, I don't remember exactly, but basically their, their theology was, or, or the way they reconciled those things was, if Jesus already has all authority, then you shouldn't be poor, you shouldn't be sick, you shouldn't be suffering because Jesus is already in power. But we have, you know, in all of Scripture, we have, especially in the, in the New Testament, we have the, the, the writings, the theology that explain and say, no, even though Jesus is already in authority, we will experience suffering. We will experience persecution. But as we saw in Revelation, by, even by dying as martyrs, that's the way that we fight against Satan. That's the way that we fight against the beast. All right, so here's another implication. The other implication is that since the whole power is, uh, um, sorry, since the whole world it lies in the power of the evil one, this means that there is no neutrality. And what do I mean by this? I mean that you are either in the kingdom of God or you are either under the dominion of Satan. There is no neutrality, right? And so this is, this is important for us to remember. For example, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is describing our condition before we were saved, he says, and you were dead in trespasses in your uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and now listen to this, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So everyone in this world is either a son of God or, or a child of God or a child of disobedience, someone who is following the power of the prince of the air. Now, it, this, is, this is obviously shocking, right? Especially in thinking like, well, even like my really nice relatives who are not believers in Jesus, even my, my, my super morally great coworkers who are, um, you know, who, who are just great people, but they don't believe in Jesus. And the answer is yes. I mean, not to say, these people are, you know, demon-possessed or anything like that. Let's not demonize these people. But it is important for us to remember that everyone who is not in Christ is still under the dominion of Satan. And, it, and this works itself out in many different ways. Now, lest we 
like I said, lest we start, we go on and start demonizing people and, and kind of, you know, just pushing everyone aside. I believe that one of the greatest lies that Satan tells or, or one, of the, one of Satan's greatest schemes is to make us think that our battle is against other people. Right? It says here in Ephesians 6, 12, Paul makes it very clear. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against other people. Right? Other people are not our enemies. We're not fighting against them. Our battle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is a spiritual battle. I think that Satan has been very successful at making us believe that our enemies are other people. He has been very successful at making us think that our enemies are the liberals or our enemies are the, the woke people or the homeless or Russia or Ukraine or Putin or Trump or, or the balloon that is flying around or whatever it is. But we, need, but we need to remember that our battle is not against physical, it's not against people. Our battle is against spiritual beings, is against Satan. Now, not to say that, that these people or, or just people in general are not influenced by Satan. I mean, I actually believe that we as Christians, if we are not careful, we can be influenced by Satan as well, right? So the... the that's why I'm saying, like, one of, one of Satan's most successful schemes is making us think that we are fighting against people. But in reality, what we see in the, in the Bible is that our job, our job towards other people is to proclaim the gospel, right? If we understand that there's either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness, and by God's grace, not by, by our own merit, but, but ultimately by the grace of God, if we understand that we have been brought into the kingdom of God, then the most loving and reasonable thing is to go out, wage war against the gate of, hell's, of hell and rescue captives from the dominion of Satan and bring them, or, or you know, God is the one who brings them to his kingdom, but he does it through our proclaiming of the gospel. All right, the other thing is that the way that Satan fights is through schemes, right? He says, uh, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan is the father of lies. His main weapon is lying. He is crafty. He is deceitful. He is clever. I don't think he usually presents himself in a way that is scary or obviously bad, right? Because if he is the father of lies, he is going to present himself as an angel of light. He is going to present himself as something attractive. He has been around for millennia. He's not eternal. He's not omniscient, but he's very intelligent, very crafty, and very old. That, uh, just a, a, quick, a quick side note, I was watching a documentary about facial recognition, and one of the things that really caught my attention is that apparently we have technology that can read the, the 
facial expressions of pigs to know how they're feeling, right? And so if you want, a, you know, if you want to eat a pig that is not stressed or a pig that is feeling well, well, we, ha we actually have the technology for that. You can read the, the facial expressions of a pig and say, okay, this is a happy pig. Let's eat this one, basically. Uh, but that got me thinking, well, if we humans can read the facial recognition of pigs, I mean, I don't know to what, I don't know what extent of power Satan has. I don't know if Satan can read our minds. I, I don't know. I don't know all that stuff. But if he has been around for that many years, he can probably read our facial expressions. I mean, he's not dumb, right? He can read our Facebook account and he can, he can see the things that we text. I don't know. I don't know, right? Maybe I'm getting too speculative. But the point here is that Satan's weapon is lying. That's how he will fight against us. Now, what is his goal? I mean, I think ultimately his goal is to do anything he can to damage God and his people. I think that ultimately his goal is to, uh, uh, kind of like with Job, is to get us to curse God, right? Get us to reject God, get us to deny him, get us to doubt of God's goodness, of God's power. His goal is to discourage us, to accuse us, to hurt us, physically, emotionally, to damage the reputation of the church, to neutralize churches by promoting false teaching, to neutralize the church by, uh, uh, through Pharisaism or legalism, elitism, division, etc. He will do anything that he can in order to derail us and separate us from God, to make us forget that God is good, that he is our savior, that he is perfect. Another thing here is that there, in verse 10, notice how it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This spiritual warfare that we are engaging in, this spiritual warfare that we're a part of, is not something that we can do in our own strength. Right? It says right there, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If we were to fight against the devil in our own might, in the strength of our own might, we would be defeated right away, immediately. And I'm sure you've experienced that. I've experienced it a, a thousand times. I don't know how many times, but I've been defeated so many times when I'm trying to fight in my own strength. And that's why we are commanded to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Because ultimately we know that God has already won the battle. Because ultimately we know that Satan has already fallen from heaven and has already been defeated. And yes, he has some limited power right now and he has some limited influence right now, but we are servants of the living God, of the, of the God Almighty, the God of the universe. He is the one who has ultimate power and therefore we need to come to him to engage in spiritual warfare. Our, we cannot muster up this strength on our own. We, cannot, we, do not, we do not have enough strength to fight against the enemy. But at the same time, we are given a command to be strong and we're also given a command to put on the whole armor of God. So just because we're fighting in God's strength 
it doesn't mean that we are passive agents here and, and, you know, basically God is protecting us and we can do whatever we want. We're not passive agents in this. We have clear commands that say that we are to be strong. We are to put on the whole armor. We are to be active agents here. Are you constantly being defeated by temptation? Are you constantly falling into the same sin over and over and over? Are you all the time struggling with the same thoughts of, of doubting God's goodness or, or not being delighted with him? Like, in other words, do you feel like Satan has been having a heyday with you for a very long time? Well, maybe you need to remember that it is a command for us to be strong. Yes, in the power of God, in, the, in, in, in God's mightiness, we are to be strengthened in him, but we are still called to do it. It's an active, it's a command that we are given. We are still called to put on the full armor of God. We are in a, in a spiritual war. Can you imagine a soldier that is just, you know, laying around doing whatever, hunting butterfly, I don't know, whatever. It's just ridiculous, right? This is, the, this is the, the command that Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. It is similar. He calls him to be strengthened, right? He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will, who will be able to teach others. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Then he switches the analogy. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And then yet again, another analogy. He says, it is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So in other words, in this battle that we're going through, we cannot afford to be lazy or passive or complacent. We are called to actively be strengthened and put on the whole armor of God. Now, lastly, before we get to the armor, uh, how do we put on the armor? How do we put it on? Well, I think that the key is in verse 18. It says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And the two key words being there are prayer and watchfulness or, or uh, being alert, keeping alert. I was feeling really discouraged this week uh, on Wednesday, I think. And the whole day was just, I don't know, I was just discouraged. And on Thursday morning, I woke up and the very first thing that I thought, I usually, when I wake up, you know, I think the first thing I probably do is grab my phone and, you know, look at whatever. But this time, the first thing that I thought was, or I, I think, you know, the first thing that God brought to my mind was watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think I needed that. I think I really, really needed that because I was discouraged and I was uh, uh, 
yeah, I was just not doing well, but I recognized that I was not being watchful. I was not praying. I was not doing the things that I was supposed to do. I was not putting on the armor of God. And so that day on Thursday, I was able to, you know, go on a mini retreat to South Bend and, uh, you know, just spend time praying and reading the Word of God and, and you know, thinking about this passage, but thinking of it not just, okay, how am I going to preach this passage, but, okay, how is this passage speaking to me? How can I be encouraged from this passage? And I think that's the key. We need to watch and pray that we may not enter into temptation. If we want to put on the armor of God, we have to be in prayer. We have to be watchful. Remember, we are in, we are in, this is war. This is spiritual war. And therefore, we have to be watchful. And so when you are praying, maybe include this to your prayer. When you are praying, ask God to give you each one of the items of this armor. Every morning when you're praying, just ask God to, to, to help you put on the armor of God, to give you the strength and the faith and all of the things that we're going to see in this armor. So getting to the armor in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. It is since, since Satan's main weapon is deceit and schemes and craftiness and lies, it only makes sense that the first weapon that, or the first item of the armor that is lifted is the belt of truth, right? Satan attacks us with his lies and we fight back or we resist. We stand with the belt of truth. One thing that I discovered this week or something that I, that I didn't discover, someone else discovered, many people discovered it before me, but for a, a personal discovery for me was that Paul is basing this armor pretty heavily on the book of Isaiah. The description of Yahweh is the description of, of, of the Lord's mighty warrior, right? And, and this is mostly coming from Isaiah 11, Isaiah 59. And what, uh, in Isaiah 11, there is a, a beautiful verse that says, you know, it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about God's warrior, God's servant, And it says, with righteousness shall he be girded around his waist and with truth bound around his sights. And the reason why I think this is such a beautiful passage is because basically what Paul is saying is the same armor that our Lord Jesus Christ has or had, you know, the armor with which he accomplished our salvation, that's the same armor that has been provided for us to wear in this spiritual warfare that we engage. And so the first thing that we are given is the belt of truth. And just think about for a moment, I'm I'm, I'm just going to list back a little bit uh, how the truth has been used in the book of Ephesians. We We could trace it throughout, you know, a lot of many other books in the Bible, but let's look at the immediate context. In, in verse one, sorry, in chapter one, verse 13, It says that in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
Then in chapter 4, verse 21, it says that, you know, it says, assuming you have heard about him, about Jesus, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus himself is the truth. The truth is in him. The gospel that we believe, the entire message of, of our salvation, the entire message of the Bible is the truth. And so if we want to be successful in fighting against the enemy and resisting the attacks of the enemy in standing against the schemes of the devil, then we need to be reminded of the truth at all times. We need to have the truth around our waist as a, as, uh, you know, as a belt that is always there. Because what Satan will do over and over and over is lie about who God is. Is lie about who we are. The devil is going to lie about our salvation. He's going to accuse us. He's going to make us feel guilty. He's going to tell us that, that, you know, that thing that you did 15 years ago, God has not forgiven you of that. Or that thing that you did 15 minutes ago just shows that you're not, you're not a true believer, right? I mean, I'm sure you, you know what I'm talking about. You know that Satan really likes to lie about the, about the gospel, about our salvation. And so we always need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel, the truth that we believed and how when we believed in Christ, we were saved. Uh, the, next thing, the next thing that he says is the breastplate of righteousness. So in verse 13, sorry, verse uh, 14, the second half says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And this is again taken from Isaiah. Isaiah 59, 17 talks about God's breastplate of righteousness. And so there's a couple of uh, maybe different ways to take righteousness. And I think it's actually, it's actually both that Paul has here in mind. One of them is our positional righteousness. That means God has declared us righteous, right? I think I heard someone say like the definition uh, justification is just as if you had not sinned, right? That is righteousness. God sees the righteousness of his son Jesus that has been imputed upon us and therefore there is no condemnation for us because we have Jesus' righteousness and then the other aspect of righteousness is moral right, righteousness, which is basically us living a righteous life of obedience to God, obedience to his law. And I think these two are extremely important. And I, I also think that Satan will use each one of those and, and he will actually like tip him one against the other to deceive us. Because on the one hand, he will question our... Uh, our positional righteousness and say, are you really forgiven? Did God actually forgive you? Did, did you? did you make sure you made that prayer exactly how the preacher told you to make that prayer? Are you Well, it's not written at the beginning of your Bible, so maybe you're not, you're not justified, you're not saved yet, or, you know, whatever, I don't know. Uh, I know that Satan can lie in any way, but he will try to get you to question your positional righteousness. But, but on the other hand, he could also maybe overly emphasize it and say, you're good. You've already been forgiven. You, you are already righteous before God. You don't need to worry about obeying the law. That's the law. That's been abolished already. You need to worry about it. You don't need to worry about obeying the commands that God has given. That's okay. You're already justified. Right? And so you see, you see what I'm saying? Like 
I think Satan can use either one of those aspects of righteousness to deceive us. And so we need to be reminded of God's righteousness. First of all, that he has justified us. But second, that he, because we have been justified, because we have been saved by grace, he expects that we perform the good works that he has prepared for us, that we would walk in them. Now in verse uh, 15, it says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And so here, the gospel of peace is what will help us in fighting the enemy and resisting, standing against the devil The way that Paul has talked about the gospel and especially the gospel of peace in the book of Ephesians is a couple of different things. One is that Christ is our peace, meaning there is no more division between Jew and Gentile. There is no more division between between brothers and sisters in the church, right? That's one of the main implications of the gospel for Paul that if we truly have believed in the gospel of peace, there will be no division. In fact, we will do our very best to promote the unity of the body in the bond of peace. And one of the ways that Satan loves to destroy the church is by, by sowing division. He will do whatever he can to get the leaders to disagree or to get people in the church to disagree or whatever he can to get churches to disagree. Right? Remember, we saw uh, quite a few weeks ago that God's purpose was to unite all things in Christ Jesus. The unification of all things in Christ Jesus is the ultimate, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal or the ultimate mystery that God has revealed to us. And obviously, Satan will be against this. And so he will try to sow division in whatever way he can. He will try to sow division in your marriage. He will try to sow division in your family. And so we need to be reminded that the gospel of peace means that there's no more enmity between us and our fellow believers. But also, the gospel of peace means that we have peace with God. It means that we have been reconciled with God, that we are no longer God's enemies. We used to be God's enemies. And the glory of the gospel is that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And that's what we need to remember. We need to remember, yes, we were his enemies, but now we have peace with God. Now we belong to him. Now there's no division between us and God. One of the things that Paul says in chapter 3 of Ephesians is, He's talking about Jesus Christ. Verse 11, he says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have access to God the Father because of the peace that he has achieved, that Jesus has achieved for us. But then another thing, notice how it says that it is the readiness of, Uh, given by the gospel of peace. And I wonder if this readiness is also encouraging us to have the gospel of peace on the tip of our tongues at all times. 
to always be ready to talk about the gospel. Or to put it the way that maybe some other people have put it is to be gospel fluent, right? That the language that we speak is the gospel. That when we are training our children, we are training them with the gospel, not with legalism, not with moralism, not with whatever else it is, but we are training them with the gospel. That when we, uh, um, when we interact with our spouses, when we have uh, issues in our marriages, that we are interacting with the gospel, that we are reminded of Ephesians 5 that we studied a couple of weeks ago, right? Where it says that husbands are to love their wives sacrificially as Jesus loved the church and wives are to submit to their husbands as, as the church submits to Christ. Right? The readiness of the gospel is that, you know, the gospel is so precious, so, so, so just amazing to us that we're always ready to speak about the gospel, to act upon the gospel. Next, he talks about the shield of faith. He says in verse 16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. In the, in the Old Testament, God is described as our shield. In the Old Testament, God is often described as the shield of his people. He is the one who protects those who take refuge in him. So our faith in the Lord Jesus, our faith in God is the shield that we have against the attacks of the enemy. The enemy will always try to get us to question God's power, God's goodness, God's wisdom. And a lot of the times when we are seeing those attacks, Sometimes he can be successful in getting our sight off of God and getting our faith, our faith off of God into other things, right? Sometimes when he is questioning that God is wise, we might start listening to the things that our culture is saying and start thinking, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe the Bible has some, some things that just don't apply to our culture today. Or maybe, maybe, I, I mean, I, don't, I hope that none of us would say, maybe God is not as wise, right? That, I, again, the devil is crafty, but ultimately the goal is for us to say, hmm, I'm going to go see what our culture has to say about this particular issue because I'm having a hard time with what the Bible says about this particular issue, right? Or maybe Satan is trying to get us to, to uh, distrust God as the one who gives us protection and assurance and security. And so when we see trials, when we start suffering, when we are being persecuted or whatever it is that we're going through, the temptation is to turn to something else for protection. Right? I mean, if you think about it, in the Old Testament, that was, that was what was happening over and over and over. God delivered the people of Israel. He was their protection but whenever they didn't see God or they didn't see Moses or, you know, Moses was taking too long up in the mountain, what did they, what did they default to? They defaulted to idols. They defaulted to something else that would give them a sense of security. And that's what Satan is trying to do in deceiving us. He's trying to default to something else for security. He's trying to, to, def, he's trying to get us to default to money or to political power or to 
whatever it is, you know, health, exercise, whatever it is, not that those things are necessarily bad, but I think what Satan wants is that we would see, we would set our faith on those things instead of God. Then he talks about the helmet of salvation. He says in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation in Isaiah 59, the Lord's warrior wears the helmet of salvation to deliver his people from their enemies. And now we have been given this helmet. We have experienced God's salvation. We have been transferred from, from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And therefore, when the enemy accuses, when he attacks us, when he tempts us, we are wearing the helmet of salvation. We know that we have been saved. We know that we belong to God. One of the biggest things that the enemy will also try to do is get you to question your salvation. He will say things like, I mean, you've been struggling with that sin for so long. I wonder if you were truly saved the first time that you accepted Christ or whatever. But when we, are, when we are secure in God, when we understand that there is, like Jordan read at the beginning of the gathering, when we understand that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death, not even the devil, nothing can separate us from the love of God, then we can fight against the enemy because we are wearing the helmet of salvation. Lastly, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers the, the Word of God. We have the Word of God here. One of the things that Sam Storms mentioned, the guy that I was listening uh, uh, on this particular chapter, that, that got my attention is he points out how the word used for word is not necessarily your regular word that, that he would usually use, but this is more of a spoken word type thing. And so one of the things that he was pointing out is that he has found that a lot of the times in spiritual warfare, it is highly effective to speak the word of God out loud. And that really caught my attention because a lot of the spiritual warfare that I, that I do, that I face, happens in my mind. But one of the things that he was saying is, no, you need to speak the word of God out loud. And he, he reminded us of uh, uh, or he, you know, he was talking about how Jesus fought the devil in, in, in the wilderness, right? How he resisted the devil. Saint, Satan came, and interestingly enough, Satan was also quoting scripture. So Satan is crafty, but Jesus was also with the word of God resisting temptation. And so if Jesus, our Lord, was from the word of God, he was resisting temptation. How much more should we not use the word, of, or how much more should we use the word of God to resist the attacks of the enemy? So, I mean, maybe just one practical thing, it would be really good for us to write down a list of passages that help us fight against a particular temptation or a particular lie of the enemy, a particular scheme of the enemy, and just have a list of those things. And whenever we are feeling tempted, when, whenever we're feeling attacked, 
to read those passages out loud. I mean, it would be even better if you could memorize those passages. If you can commit them to memory and just speak them out loud. One of the benefits of celebrating communion every week is that we basically get to put on the armor of God every week, right? We basically, we get to remember all of these things. We, we proclaim the truth of the gospel, right? We put on the belt of truth as we declare the truth. I mean, from the beginning of the gathering, right? We're reading a psalm, we're, we're singing the truth, we're reading the truth, we're praying the truth. And we are reminded of our righteousness. We are reminded of the work of God in saving us, in making us righteous, in justifying us. We're reminded of the gospel. One of the things that we try to be extremely intentional about is that the gospel is always proclaimed. I mean, the, all of the gospel, but specifically the explicit gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to forgive us for our sins. And when we have communion, I mean, we proclaim it right there. We are reminded of our salvation. We are reminded that our faith is in God and the word of God, the sword of the spirit is proclaimed over and over and over. And so as we partake of communion, think about these things. Maybe keep, keep your Bible open in this passage and just before you, before you come and, and take the elements, just think about these things and pray and ask God to help you put on the whole armor that he has provided. Just think about each one of these items and, and, and remember how Jesus, through his sacrifice, he has given us salvation. He is the truth. He is our shield. He is our protector. He is our deliverer. So let's celebrate communion. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray that you strengthen us as a church. One of the things I forgot to mention is that this passage is addressed to the whole church. It's not a singular, you put on the armor, but you all put the armor. Lord, I pray that we as a church would put on the armor of God that you have provided for us. I pray that we would be reminded of the righteousness that is ours in Jesus, of the reconciliation, the peace that your son Jesus has gained for us, that there's no more enmity between you and us, but we are forgiven and we belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.